0: Dennis, you mentioned a nice friendly chat this afternoon, so mm. we'll throw it out to you to start with. You've obviously been involved in the teaching and practice of herbal medicine for what, a couple of years now. A couple. A f- couple? Forty?
1: About 40. About
0: 40. <laughs> so I would imagine there's been a few things change in that. Oh, look, <laughs> what are some of the big there's, changes there's that you can there's been think some of?
1: some huge changes. I think that uh, there's some changes along these lines that there's much more acceptance in the community now of the validity of sensible herbal medicine. So when you started,
0: was yes. it kind of considered a bit more quackery, a yep. bit more that's out there yep. with the fairies, that's yep. Byron yep. Bay, yep. sort
1: of Nimbin stuff? Well, you have to keep in mind that the renaissance of herbal medicine in Australia and indeed in the United States and Great Britain was in fact associated with what was then called the counterculture. And the herbal medicine was seen, if you like, as uh, an appendage of that whole movement of dissent and reaction against so much of conventional lifestyle, conventional politics, even conventional medicine. So you're a bit of a hippie. Mm. Look, in, in fact, it might startle listeners to know that, in fact, uh, <laughs> I was. and, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, In fact, I belonged, uh, as did my dear wife and, and children, to a cooperative in the area not far from where you were. And look, I never, ever uh, look back on those years as negative. I think they were very formative years and a lot of the ideas that came out of what was then called the counterculture have in fact lingered on and led to significant changes in attitude and um, it was an interesting experience and during that period of time uh, I became very very interested and involved in herbal medicine as you would expect uh, from that part of the world and indeed many of my first students even when I started teaching in Sydney both at Glebe and St Leonard's. In various colleges, many of my students would be seen as, if you like, students that had come back to the city uh, from areas that you've mentioned to study herbal medicine, but brought with them a lot of those, what I consider to be um, very gentle and interesting, unconventional and forefront ideas, and out of that sprang herbal medicine.
0: I guess there always is some resistance to change Mm. when there are things afoot just off from the mainstream, isn't there? And obviously herbal medicine went through its own period of of adjustment and finding its place in the world.
1: I think it did, and I think that even though I have put it as being perhaps uh, a renaissance uh, that took place as a part of a larger social and political movement, a lot of things did then happen which entrenched the credibility of herbal medicine and one of those was the emerging science supporting the use of plant-based medicine that was probably one of the big aspects of uh, after the second world war how herbal medicine looked at less empirically and more scientifically was shown to have validity and that of course has lingered on so that uh, modern herbal medicine today depends just as much on a chemical understanding of the herb as it does on its traditional use. And one of the things that I had a lot to do with, uh, even participating in in, uh, committees and meeting with government representatives, was to seek to give credibility uh, to herbal medicine on the basis that it had a valuable literature base, a credible scientific base emerging from the literature, which underpinned or supported a lot of the traditional claims that had been made for herbal medicine.
0: So it's a case of, um, you know what, we've actually got some facts to back up what we're of saying. Course. We're not just out there just on a whim or, or on a, a theory, okay. but we've got some data over the years to back it up. Dennis, we might head to the telephone and come back very, very shortly uh, to continue that conversation. Uh, we're heading to, uh, where are we heading to, Kahiba and good morning, afternoon to you, Brenda. You've got a question for Dennis about psyllium. Uh, hello, Dennis. Yes. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you. Good,
2: um, I've been using psyllium for mm. almost 12 months now yes. for a very high cholesterol problem. Yes. I don't know whether it's working yet because I haven't had a blood, yeah, um, a blood test as okay. yet. Okay. But I'm just wondering, it, it's supposed to, like, bind to the LDL and sweep out, you know, the bad stuff. Is it sweeping out other things as well? Um, I, I take a probi- pre-bi- pre- and probiotic combination yes. because I do have gut gut problems. Yes. Um I've noticed that for some reason, just in the last couple of months, that that's not working as well as it has been. Would, would the psyllium be affecting that as well? Or Look,
1: the, am there, I... there is an argument to, uh, to, to say that psyllium, which contains a substance called mucilage, uh, may, depending on the quantity being taken, uh, bind to other substances, some vitamins, perhaps even minerals, and cause mm-hmm. over a period of time some depletion in their levels. Now, my study of that is that you would have to be taking a very, very large amount of concentrated mucilage um, deliberately in order to see the likelihood of that happening. And even though there are some uh, warnings in in some literature, usually literature that's a little bit sceptical and antagonistic to herbal medicine, suggesting uh, the possibility of what you have said, I, I have never seen any evidence of that. And indeed, mm-hmm. mucilage occurs not only in psyllium, it occurs in many other foods. It occurs in, in oats, and uh, many foods that we eat contain mucilaginous substances, which work similarly to the principles found in psyllium. So my view is um, the use of psyllium as you're using it, it would be unlikely, in my opinion, to be doing anything detrimental to you. And I think I've said on this program before that in the literature that I regard as being valuable, uh, soluble fiber which is characteristic of psyllium has a very strong rating as an agent capable of participating in cholesterol reduction and indeed in maintaining better blood sugar levels so I think any any concern about it is is in my opinion a bit dubious and uh, mm-hmm. the benefits associated with soluble fiber are so outstanding that in my opinion if we're not using some form of fiber we are putting a lot of our, our health at risk, particularly health pertaining to the large bowel.
2: Yeah. Well, my problem is, I do. I have a, a, a zillion food intolerances, yes, so I yes. don't eat grains because yes, I can't. Yes, um, yes. But the psyllium was. I was told yes. that the psyllium, you know, should be all right. I may have overdone it. I may have, been, like, uh, you know, might, might have been taking too much. I have cut back the dosage a little bit lately, just mm. in case. That's got anything to do with it, but um, yeah, I just thought I well, know,
1: my, my, wanted your uh, opinion. But I can uh, I can convey to you um, back at my rooms, and indeed, when you finish talking to me, you can ring my rooms at four nine five six two three two one, and the staff there will give you the the dosage from the literature that psyllium is recommended to be taken at. Don't hold me to it, but I think it's something like. 15 grams a day don't hold me to that but if you were to ring that number and if I get back there a bit after one I'll take your call in any case but Uh I I think it would be difficult for you to take too much of it Uh, but you do need to take it at a a decent level in order to be able to seek to get some benefit from these the substance in helping lower your cholesterol level but remember it's only one means of helping bring your cholesterol to a more reasonable level it's not Uh, the only measure there are other measures but it's a very important measure in my opinion okay righto thanks dennis good on you
0: thank you very much brenda some great advice there and we're going to stick dennis with that part of the body with uh, mark from tea gardens you have a question about the small bowel
3: oh yes um yeah well i had uh it was actually 12 years ago now um i'm 60 years old um, I had all my small bowel taken out Yes um, Because of adhesions Yes uh, From when the appendix burst when I was 18 dear,
1: dear. Um,
3: it, Yeah. Anyway um, The problem I've got um, I'm not really sure which way to go I can't stand taking um, like drugs to stop pain And different things But um, it, yeah I've been bleeding a fair bit um, from the stomach mm. um, and I'm just not sure exactly what to do um what I'm concerned mm, about mm. is um uh, I suffer um uh, w- when this happens uh anxiety and like of depression course, because uh, yeah I, I just hate it oh, you know like because I can't stop
1: it All right, look. What The first thing that I need to pass on to you, Mark, is that bleeding from anywhere in the gastrointestinal tract obviously and urgently needs medical investigation. And if you haven't had that done, do go oh, to your GP. It's all
3: been done. Okay. I think that, um, um, what do you, I've got lesions between... Where they reconnected my small bowel okay. to my large bowel.
1: Yes, yes, and but, yeah. And, and, um, and is is that is the condition active all the time?
3: No, it only ever happens sometimes. Okay. And okay. Um, and the thing, what, what see, I don't want to go on to painkillers or anything like that because
1: mm. uh, when I'm in
3: hospital, they give me morphine and yes, stuff but yes. it just makes me feel sick. Yes.
1: Yeah. Well, the thing that I would say is that the pain level that you're experiencing is probably such that other substances would not give you the relief that you need. Now, morphine is, is, in my opinion, a gracious drug. It has made pain management um, something much more bearable today than when my dear grandfather died when I was only a kid eight years of age, a terrible death where morphine was not being used. Um, I'm a bit of a fan of the sensible, controlled, understood use of that medication, which, after all, uh, morphine is a, is an alkaloid that comes from the opium poppy. Look, if your doctors give you that, yeah. Yeah. And, it's the, yeah. and it's the only thing that can help you, you must wear that. It's the only yeah. thing. It's better. Look, Mark, it's better to be medicated properly. By your doctors who are concerned about you, rather than agonize with pain, because pain can be debilitating and pain. Oh, in, yes. pain, oh. in fa- pain, in fact, can make you more anxious and tense. I would, I, I would, from what you've told me, it looks as though you're having very good medical care. Life is, not, a, life is not an ideal transit. We all have our ups and downs. You are, in my oh, opinion, yeah. probably doing pretty well considering what you've told me, and I think what your doctors are doing is as good as you're going to get.
3: Yeah. Yeah the, um, yeah, the only thing what I was really concerned about is the anxiety that I go through. Like, how do you stop it?
1: Well, okay, this is something that your GP can handle, And there are medications today of varying natures, which particularly take the edge off anxiety. You have a talk to your GP about that because there are substances out there that can make your life a bit bearable, particularly with your history and background and your age factor.
0: Thank you very much, Dennis. Some great advice there for Mark. Got some more calls coming through for Dennis Stewart on health naturally. We'll get to those very, very shortly. And continuing our chat as well with Dennis Stewart this afternoon about the changes in herbal medicine throughout his forty year. Can you believe it, Dennis? Forty years on the job. As we continue with Dennis Stewart, health naturally this afternoon. Dennis, we're halfway through. Got about half hour to go. Are you handling it okay? Oh, certainly. Certainly. Oh, all right, let's get you some more calls. Good afternoon, Lee at Ashton Field. You've got a question for Dennis about folate today.
4: Yes, yes, Dennis. Hello, um, good, how are you? I'm well indeed. Um, my daughter believes that she needs to take high dose of folate. I think it's about five milligram mm-hmm. because in her husband's side of the family, there's spina bifida mm-hmm. and she wants to take it before she conceives. But she's having a bit of gut problem.
1: She's having a gut problem.
4: Yeah, because I think she's taking folic acid instead. Okay.
1: Look, the, uh, folate is a fairly commonly used supplement today, particularly to seek to address that problem you've mentioned. With all substances, however, there are recommended dosages and ways to take them. Um, I would uh, prefer to, to see your daughter having a good talk with her GP or a pharmacist or indeed a dietician to ensure that she's taking the right preparation in the right dose, particularly if she's getting some tummy upsets. Right. I think it's as simple is as that. Th-
4: is there a big difference between folate and folic acid?
0: Folate's folate. folate. Right. Take it. That would be a no, Dennis. <laughs> very right to say. Thank you very much, Lee. Heading to Bolton Point, and Bob, you've got a friend whose daughter has a skin condition. They haven't been able to diagnose it yet.
4: Yeah, g'day. Um, no, they haven't. Uh, it's been on going for a, a few years now. Um, the hospital, uh, they can't. It just starts out as a little tiny. I'll um, we say a little little red red. And white dot, and then it spreads like, uh, not circular or anything like that, it just comes out like, uh, all real funny or anything like that there. And then when she has a really bad reaction, it inflames all the joints, her backbone, uh, the spine, it, um, but actually, the lumps come out, and she's riddled with pain. She's got a, she has got a, uh, a oh dear. Yeah, she's got a uh, actually pain management team. Yes. So um, they are reluctant to give her any any painkillers and stuff like that when they go in, but um, some of the officers that are high, that that, just, uh, just uh, give it to us because hmm. they can't. They 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 got involved with the city lot. They they got especially in Darwin, mm-hmm. and they still haven't established what it is. But what I bring up for today is. When she gets the welts, they're the, the, the welts. Yes. Um, she burns up, and her mother, she's very astute and very good. Mm. She's trying to get something to cool her down. Like, um, we went to the chemistry the other night, um, and they couldn't. She spied aloe vera and all this kind of stuff in that, but she just wants something to, to cool her down. So I, I just went up with glass of salt.
1: Yes, uh, how how old's the little girl?
4: She's uh, thirteen.
1: Okay, and she lives in Darwin.
4: No, no, no. They a special down in Darwin. Oh, okay. To to, to, to check her out, and, and they still haven't established what it
1: is. Okay. Look, anything um, any, anything I were to say here would be probably superficial, but uh, because who am I to dare to uh, to give a, an opinion when? the little girl has been subject to the best diagnostic uh, mechanisms that we've got around the place um, yeah. but sometimes with with conditions that are fiery hot um, and yeah. I, pres- I presume this would have been looked at by your gp sometimes using things such as, as Patadol and things like that will tend to lower uh, temperature experience um, no it doesn't it doesn't happen uh, okay. it doesn't happen the the other thing is that there are a number of so-called cooling substances um, i've always found that menthol is a useful topical agent occasionally i have experienced a little bit of eczema or dermatitis and i have found menthol-based preparations uh, particularly in my case with a little bit of pine tar has been very very useful now menthol's a very very harmless topical application it should perhaps be mentioned uh, to your GP, I'm sure he's probably thought about it, but raise it with him. It can't harm, in my opinion. A pharmacist would be able to dispense it in, in, a, in a in a form that would be applicable. Uh, it's the thing that comes to my mind at this stage, purely as something that might, when topically applied as a lotion, bring about some sort of cooling effect. Yeah, well, that's what she's looking at. Just to try and
0: cool it down. It's um, sort it and. Thank you very much, Bob, and uh, hopefully they can uh, get some relief, yeah, Dennis, yeah. as they move Look, through Look,
1: skin, skin conditions can be sometimes the most difficult things mm. to diagnose and get onto, and that's why I was reluctant to even participate in, in any serious uh, opinion on it, because the little girl's been subject to excellent diagnostic activity, and if that hasn't thrown up the cause, who am I? But as far as giving some relief, I come back to the point that something as simple as a menthol lotion might be useful. I say might be.
0: And I guess, Dennis, uh, I mean, throughout your time of mm. uh, participating in herbal medicine mm. and your career generally over the last four decades, you would have seen you know, just about everything come down the road. And, and, and I guess with that in mind, you would have some particular highlights that would have sort of characterised your last four decades in the industry?
1: Look, I think there have been some outstanding highlights. Doing this program, for example. Oh, up and, and particularly with you, Mark, <laughs> yeah. like an up-and-coming star there we of the go. media.
0: Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, some <laughs> other actual highlights there. Yeah, look, I think one of the
1: big ones actually in some ways was associated with this university in as much that uh, Professor Clifton Elliott, who was the professor of physics at this university years ago, he retired to his little property on the central coast he was a New Zealander with his dear wife um, and uh, Nairi, and they had a little farm there, and uh, he knew that I was interested in herbal medicine, and uh, he contacted me and wanted to know how we could to put it, get into herbs, and he was a retired professor of physics interested in getting into herbs. Well, we struck up. It's a bit of a cross there. Yeah, isn't well, it? Well, look, at the, he was a remarkable man. and When we developed a relationship, that was almost father and son, and, in fact, we became, as far as I'm aware the first growers commercially of the Herb Echinacea purpurea on his farm in Peach Orchard Road. And I put that as being one of the highlights of my professional career, my association Mm. with the dear professor, working with him to get the farm going. We ran cash crop seminars where growers came from all over the state to see how we grew Echinacea. And the highlight of that episode was that a gentleman from Utah which is the heartland of, of herbal medicine preparations in the US, uh, Mormon territory, good businessmen, good ethical people. This gentleman who was associated with New, uh, um, New Pro uh, came out and sought us out. And he went to Cliff's Farm with myself and was staggered by the beauty of the place. And he offered to buy every bit of Echinacea purpurea we could grow—the <laughs> whole lot—and and of course we could we couldn't meet the expectation. <laughs> but that was the highlight because we did go on as a result of that to see Echinacea purpurea become a very popular and established medicinal herb in the Australian herb market.
0: I guess this also goes back to what you're saying mm. before about once there's some evidence out there, something goes from being sort of Fringy and on the edge to becoming very mainstream, as that certainly did.
1: Well, with Echinacea, remember, um, even though it was always used in what's called English-speaking herbalism, it was an American herb uh, which was taken up uh, by the Americas and also by the English, and particularly English herbalists. Interestingly, it uh, has been the Germans who have done most to see Echinacea, the three species of it, become a very, very popular medication, even prescribed by doctors in Germany, and the literature uh, put out by the Germans in modern times, particularly based on the phytochemistry of the herb, have given credibility to the traditional use of the herb that came out of the United States. So the growing of the herb here in Australia, particularly with uh, Professor Elliot and also Greenridge Botanicals in Toowoomba, was reinforced uh, by literature. Uh, primarily of German origin, uh, looking at it more in a modern-day perspective and looking at it from a clinical um, phytochemical perspective. So I still, even though I look back on my career as having many highlights, that is probably the point that uh, that makes me most proud, the way in which uh, I established with others, particularly the good professor, in getting echinacea seen in this country as probably one of the most important preventative natural remedies.
0: You also mentioned that it was kind of a father-son-like relationship. Was. Were you the son in this, yes, in this example? Yes. No.
1: <laughs> Dear De- 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 Cliff. Dear Cliff. Uh, he died mm. only about a decade ago, and he was mm. in his 90s when he died. He had moved to Queensland to be with his uh, family on the Darling Downs. Uh, but he was an elderly man when he came to study under me. And uh, as I say, we developed this great relationship very frequently he would ring uh, me when I'd be in practice in my rooms at Gosford and say, would you like to come out to dinner tonight? And <laughs> we'd eventually meet him and we'd go out to a little restaurant round Terrigal called Kim's a remarkable place. I look back on it with great fondness, good food, and it was great to be in the company of Cliff, and whenever possible, we'd meet, and it was becoming very regular that we'd meet at that lovely place to enjoy the food, and of course, we tossed around some wonderful ideas on herbal medicine. He was a New Zealander, and interestingly, I say to this day, New Zealanders have got green fingers, and he and his wife proved that with their little farm in Peach Orchard Road.
0: As we continue with uh, Health Naturally this afternoon with Dennis Stewart, he's over there busy reading a book. Dennis, you've got to wake up. You've still got a bit of time to go, yeah? It's not relaxing time just yet. preparing for next week. Preparing for next week, yeah. A very likely story, <laughs> a very likely story. Good afternoon, Rhonda at Rathmines. Now, you've got a question for Dennis. You would like to hear about old man weed. Is that correct? It's old man weed.
2: It's growing down along the banks of the Murray River. Yes. And
1: like, my um, Aboriginal auntie swears by it. Okay. If it's... It, I, look, the, the problem with the problem with herbs is that many of them have uh, colloquial or common names um, which vary from place to place. and this is particularly so uh, with uh, indigenous remedies as it is with, with, with all herbal medicine remedies. Uh, the problem basically is unless you get the botanical name, it's very difficult. Um, to make claims or give credibility to a particular herb, uh, regardless of whether it's got a good reputation or not. So off the top of my head, I can't um, remember a herb that I've dealt with that's called that name, but putting things together, putting things together, it would imply that it is a herb that has some effect or benefit, perhaps on old men's conditions, now, one of the most common conditions that older men get is enlargement of the prostate gland, which affects urination. That is, it affects the, the man's ability to urinate, a, a lot of a frequency of urination, etc., etc. So it could be that the herb they're talking about has developed a reputation in the indigenous population for being able to assist um, in managing some of the symptoms of that condition which the majority of males, both indigenous males and and, and all males, will get uh, sometime in their life. Um, It seems as though it could work something like uh, the herb known as saw palmito. Now, saw palmito is an American herb which has a very credible reputation for alleviating that condition which I come back to is very, very frequently experienced by older men. Um, It would be unlikely to be saw palmito, but it would be good if you could get hold of a sample of it and do what a gentleman did only a couple of days ago in my rooms, present a sample of it to me, not of this herb. We were talking about another herb weeks ago. uh, Present it to me so that I can have it professionally identified. If we can get it professionally identified, that allows us to do two things, to see if there is anything in the literature that supports claims that are made for it, And and secondly, to see if it warrants, if you like, undergoing some uh, trials uh, to see if there is credibility with it. It would be good if she could get, he or she could get a sample of the the herb, uh, preferably dried, but doesn't necessarily have to be dried, put it in a plastic bag send it to my rooms at 39 Alma Road, and I'll look into it for her.
0: Some interesting advice there. I hope you got something out of that, Rhonda. First, and uh, nextly, uh, Pete, you're at Fassifern. You've got a big thank you for Dennis today.
5: Oh, yes, thank you, uh, Dennis. I was, I'm actually in the car waiting, and I'm half asleep. Okay. <laughs>
0: That's all right. I'm Dennis doing, is half I'm, asleep as well.
5: I'm, I'm, I'm doing a Dennis here. Okay. Uh, now, my thanks have been the, the two things. Uh, like, oh, Cam, you helped me enormously over the last 12 months. you got me on the floor, brilliant. Uh, and that brought my uh, uh, pressures down from 16, 16 to 12. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. And wonderful. Uh, the Ross River Fever that I didn't know I had six yeah. months. What you told me, it was brilliant. But the next thing I went on to, I, I bought this book you've been talking about all yes, the time, yes. Dennis.
1: Which is that one?
5: Yeah, I think it was Foods to Fight Cancer. Correct.
1: Wonderful work. Wonderful it's
5: the greatest work. book I've ever read. It's wonderful so simple Simple to read. Yes, um, I'm not quite sure the scientific signage how to go through that uh, track, but yep. uh, I'm quite sure a lot of others would. Yes, but uh, it is a marvelous book, and it just tells you everything. You should, everybody, everybody should know
1: I think about what a, to eat. I think you're absolutely right, and uh, I'm glad you've got hold of the book, and I'm glad you've emphasised the point that most listeners would take up on. That even though this book has been written. Uh, by two gentlemen with uh, PhDs, that's very high qualifications, who work in clinical situations. Uh, The language is such that anyone can make their way through the book even if they're not able to understand some of the the diagrams and, and some of the minimal biochemistry that's there. I have never, and I say this and I've read a lot of books, perhaps too many books, I have never read a book Uh, on cancer and the relationship beneficially of certain foods to it. I've never read a book as good as this, Foods That Fight Cancer, um, by the two um, Canadians, uh, Gingras and Bellevue. I'm glad you've done it, and and I commend other listeners that are interested in perhaps looking at uh, the way in which um, cancer may be able to be uh, fought against by dietary measures, particularly looking at, the handful of foods that these two gentlemen present. They do not present a cure as such. What they are saying is that there are are certain foods that they have analysed and that these foods contain what are called phytochemicals. And some of these phytochemicals act in a way that I call like mini-chemotherapeutic agents, even though they're food-based. And they address cancerous processes in particular ways. Carried out in a dietary program, or an eating program over many years, my conclusion is that these gentlemen are onto something and if people reading the book were to take on board some of the recommendations about some of the available, simple, inexpensive foods that they can incorporate into their diet, they may find that that has an effect on lessening the assertion of this wretched disease. Well done, mate. I'm pleased.
0: Well, we've just about run out of time. Mm-hmm. We did have a Kate from Edgeworth. She had one very simple question, if you can yes, answer it in yes. 15 seconds, Dennis. Yes. Can you ingest essential oils?
1: I always caution people on ingesting essential oils. Okay. Essential oils can be some of the most toxic substances when ingested that we know of. Uh, I, I don't encourage it in any way whatsoever. Okay. Too dangerous, in my opinion.
0: Proceed with caution. Absolutely. All right, Dennis, you'll be back next week for another exciting oh,
1: program. I wouldn't miss it with you, Mark. I wouldn't miss well, it. Well, you are stuck with me oh, for the next few weeks.
0: Wow. 2NURFM 103.7. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business, and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.